Hi there, and welcome to the podcast for this Tuesday, January the 12th. Coming up, a high level of burnout affecting our healthcare workers, plus new Ontario COVID modeling details and a new state of emergency and a stay-at-home order announced by Premier Ford. All of that coming up on the podcast right now. There's a new study out that says that there is a high level of burnout that is affecting our frontline healthcare workers. Now, that's not exactly breaking news. That is not surprising. But what is, is when the burnout started. Dr. Barry Rubin is with Toronto General Hospital. He's part of the study and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Doctor, good afternoon. Appreciate you joining us. Afternoon, Jeff. All right, just uh, first off, give us the details, if you can, uh, behind this uh, study. The fact that burnout started actually for a lot of our healthcare heroes pre-pandemic. So we were concerned about the amount of burnout that we thought was going on in the Peter Monk Cardiac Center, but we really didn't know the extent, so we set out to measure that. We used a tool from the Mayo Clinic, and our results were really surprising. Uh, I thought, I've been here for 35 years, did ICU care for 20, and I don't think that there's a bigger issue than burnout in healthcare today. And what is the reason for the burnout? Do we know, Dr. Rubin? Is it just uh, the, the amount of hours? Is it the nature of the work? Uh, is it all of the above? Yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll just tell you the, the results of the study. We found that 78% of the nurses, 73% of the allied health staff, that's pharmacists, physical occupational therapists, 65% of the physicians had burnout, and similar numbers in all three categories had distress. Um, which is a composite of meaning in work, fatigue, work-life balance, quality of life, and suicide, or suicide thoughts, rather. And, you know, we were really surprised by those numbers. I think it's what you said. It's just the reality of working in healthcare. Uh, but we thought it was important to measure that so that we can uh, design strategies to try and decrease the amount of burnout amongst our staff. Yeah, I want to get to those in a second, but the effect of this uh, burnout on uh, these workers, these people that uh, give so tirelessly uh, of themselves to help uh, others. I mean, when you talk about work-life balance, Dr. Rubin, I'm guessing there's not much because I'm, you know, these uh, healthcare workers, uh, they're going home, uh, they're, they're carrying this uh, with them, and I have to imagine it's affecting their personal lives. Yeah, so there's, there's really three areas where burnout impacts the healthcare system. First is the patient's. So it's just intuitive. If you have somebody who's burnt out, they're emotionally exhausted, uh, experiencing depersonalization, they're just not at their best. We know that's associated with an increased incidence of medical errors, safety events, readmissions, worse outcomes, and in some situations, even increased mortality. But more than that, there's the impact on the people themselves. We're just people taking care of other people. And if you're burnt out, um, you're experiencing extreme fatigue, you're more likely to leave your job, quality of life has decreased, and as I mentioned, thoughts of suicide. And tragically, there have been some episodes, uh, some examples rather, of people that have died by suicide. Most recently, emergency room doctor uh, in Quebec, and I'm aware of another emergency room doctor in New York. And it was um, principally related to the stress of working in the during the COVID pandemic. All right, so just what is it that this study, what are you and others uh, recommending that we can do to help alleviate this problem of burnout? So by doing a formal study, we were able to determine what the drivers are of burnout. And we found that if people feel that they're not being treated fairly at work, and if there's not adequate staffing levels, they're much more likely to have burnout and high levels of distress. 
And it's not complicated stuff. You know, we've spoken with uh, doctors and nurses, and especially in the ICU, nurses tell me, look, I'm stressed out because I don't have time to go get a drink of water. I can't use the bathroom. I don't have time to eat lunch. I have to manage taking care of my patient and trying to set up a video call because the patient's families can't be in hospital so they can talk with their loved ones. It's really the totality of doing this in an environment where we happen to take care of the sickest of the sick patients. And what I think is really quite remarkable, I'm proud of our team, we compare our results to a 1,000 other hospitals that do heart surgery in North America, and we still have fantastic results. We're better than just about every place. The question is, how long can that be sustained? And just how easy is that solution of just hiring more staff, hiring more nurses, hiring more doctors? Uh, as we know, uh, I mean, our healthcare uh, system uh, already is a stretch to the max when it comes to a budget. And, you know, we've spent so much during uh, COVID as well. It's hard to believe that there's going to be extra dollars floating out there in government budgets uh, moving forward. Yeah, so I, I agree with you completely. And I do not think that that is the solution. And in fact, it's going in the other direction. There's current estimates that 10 to 20 percent of the healthcare workforce is going to leave healthcare because of uh, stresses associated with the pandemic. So this is going to be much more about designing workplace environments and the ways that we work to make it more efficient and more conducive to people really being happy and satisfied and feeling good about the work that they do and being able to manage work and the uh, pressures at home with, you know, the kids are at home, you live in a multi-generational household. There's lots of stuff that uh, people have on their plate, including, not the least of which is, we're, you know, healthcare workers are worried about getting COVID and getting sick themselves. Yeah, can you give us, have you had any first-hand experience with those that are on the front lines helping out with COVID and just uh, how that has uh, affected them? What have you seen, Dr. Rubin? And how does that kind of, I guess, percolate throughout the uh, hospital, even those that aren't dealing with uh, COVID? Uh, I'm sure that they're feeling the effects of it, too. I've just never seen stress levels the way that they are now. I think that there's a certain amount of rallying together. It's a crisis mode, and we're just going to do whatever it takes. But And we've done that, but I don't think that it's realistic to think that you can do that month over month, uh, and especially when you think about the numbers that the Premier is about to announce, and, you know, we saw a preview of it earlier, uh, that there's going to be this overwhelming amount of requirement for access to hospitals, access to ICU beds. The most challenging element of this is going to be to find the staff to take care of the people that get sick. Well, listen, we have to take care of those that take care of us. Uh, Dr. Rubin, thank you so much uh, for your time and shining a light on this. Really appreciate the discussion. Pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. You as well. Dr. Barry Rubin is with Toronto General Hospital. And back to the breaking news of this Tuesday afternoon. As you heard moments ago, live here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, Premier Ford issuing a stay-at-home order for the province. Have a listen. Here's the uh, Premier just uh, minutes ago. Ontario is declaring a state of emergency. We expect this to remain in place for at least 28 days. Further, I'm issuing a stay-at-home order effective Thursday at 12.01 a.m. Under this order... Everyone must stay home and only go out for essential trips to pick up groceries or go to medical appointments. All right, we've got the story fully covered, complete analysis for you, and it starts with vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, who joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Gorfinkel, many thanks for the time as always. Many thanks for having me, Jeff. 
Okay, what do you think of the stay-at-home order? I mean, some would think or call it a little heavy-handed, but uh, medically, where we're at uh, right now when it comes to the modeling and the current COVID caseload, do you believe it's necessary? Absolutely. You know what it comes down to? Right now, one quarter of all the ICUs in Ontario have no beds whatsoever. Zero. So what does that mean? Another quarter has only one to two beds available. So we are rapidly coming down to no services available when they're needed most by people who may be coming by ambulance. So that means people are traveling further by ambulance. And it all comes down, it it goes right down the ladder. What's the ladder? The ladder is it's not just a question of the number of ICU beds that are filled. It's how many people are showing up to hospital. How many people are then trying to get into primary care services, and that's also being overwhelmed rapidly. So it all comes down, goes right down that ladder. So, yes, we absolutely need to do this. I'm concerned that people think, oh, you know, the vaccine is here. People in long-term care are being vaccinated. But you and I recognize that's less than 1% of our entire population. We have very few vaccines in the hundreds of thousands. We do not have the millions of vaccines that would be required to achieve anywhere near herd immunity. So those vaccines for now, that's a theory. That's going to take place once we have an entire population vaccinated or at least 70%. Okay, let's talk a little more about the vaccine, because we heard the premier a couple of times in the press conference in the last half hour mention that the vaccine needs a runway. Just how critical is it to, to find some time, get these numbers down, uh, give get a little breathing space, I guess, uh, for the vaccine to get here and to do its work? Well, we've got two vaccines. We have the Pfizer vaccine, and that's what we've had the most of so far. So the Pfizer vaccine requires specific storage, and that pro- that, that's problematic because nobody has a refrigerator or freezer unit that stores at minus 70, or very few people do. And that's why it was pushed out to very few of the hospitals. So the hospitals and the healthcare workers who are frontline workers, for the most part, not 100%, are the ones who are vaccinated first. And now that we're getting the Moderna product, which can, in fact, be stored at regular refrigerator temperatures, we're hoping to see far more people in long-term care vaccinated and rapidly. Yeah, is there a race, sorry to interrupt, Dr. Gorfinkel, but is there a race between the COVID caseload and the supply of the vaccine and are we in danger of uh, losing that uh, race to the caseload? I worked this morning, and I can tell you, Practically every single patient I've seen has asked me the same question. When do I get vaccinated? And many of them are high-risk individuals over the age of 70, plus they have chronic conditions. And the best I can tell them is I think it's going to be sometime in March. But the truth is, we don't know when Canada is going to receive vaccine product exactly. So a lot will depend on how much and how soon we can get the vaccine product itself. All right. Obviously, that is uh, up in the air and out of a uh, lot of uh, hands or the control of uh, particularly the uh, provincial government, as they've mentioned several times, that's a uh, federal issue. Uh, By the way, we did get an announcement from the prime minister earlier today. Twenty more million doses of that uh, Pfizer vaccine is uh, on its way. So just before I leave the vaccine, how comforting is that information? It sounds as if we're going to have more than enough vaccine to get to herd immunity later this year. 
Right, but he was saying we're not going to get that until March. That's the problem. Like, yeah, we get that we've purchased a lot of vaccines. I can only hope that what will happen is that we'll get vaccine products sooner than we realize. Understand, we didn't think we'd be receiving any vaccinations until first quarter. So we thought our first vaccines may be coming as early or rather as late as March. That's what we originally thought. But when did they come? They came in December. Ontario had its vaccines, initial vaccines, and by December 15th. So let's just hope that we get more vaccines sooner. But even then, those measures to stay at home, to keep the gathering small, that is a key message right now because that's still our main strategy. The reason he's calling it an emergency and, and putting all of this out is because we don't have any other strategies. Those hospital services will rapidly be overwhelmed. And guess what? When there is no ICU bed, all those high-risk patients who are booked for their knee replacements and all that elective surgery, it's all put on hold. So ICU means no elective surgery. If there's no ICU bed, there cannot be elective surgeries for high-risk individuals who need that backup just in case. Joined by vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel as we're going over the announcement from the provincial government just moments ago. A stay-at-home order has been issued for the province as of Thursday. Also, a second state of emergency during this pandemic has been declared for the province. Uh, the Premier, Dr. Gorfinkel, also pointed to the U.K. strain, that there's now eight known cases of it in the province. Just how concerned are you or should we all be about this new strain? You know, understand, when we find eight cases, that means there's a lot more cases out there because we're not testing everybody. And nor are we testing every single test to see what strain it is. So you do the test, and, you know, I'm proud to say, gosh, we're getting 80-plus percent of results within two days. That's amazing. But not all of them are tested for what strain they are. Only a small percentage are. But the fact that we're picking it up at all is of great concern. Why? Because it seems to spread anywhere between 60 to 70 percent faster. And that makes a big difference to the number of cases. That's how the U.K. picked it up, actually. They saw this huge spike in cases, and they realized something's afoot. And now we know that this virus is, in fact, far more contagious. So that's of concern. But luckily, it, all the vaccinologists, the researchers in the area, believe it will be a, still prevented by getting vaccinated. But that's tomorrow. That's not now. Yeah, Should we have done uh, what the premier just announced? Should we have done this uh, earlier, acted uh, earlier with maybe a stay-at-home order and, and some of the other things that have uh, been talked about uh, here this afternoon? I mean, why is it? Do we know why this current lockdown seemingly hasn't worked and that the, the growth rate is accelerating instead of declining? Great question. You know, you take a look at the number of cases, and you know how the, the stores were open? What was it? Right up until December 23rd, I think. And what we see is that pre-holiday spike. If you look at the number of cases, right now we're in deep doo-doo because people went shopping. That's exactly what happened. And then you see the case numbers fall right when people are, it's Christmas Day, where are they going to go? Everybody's staying at home. And you can see the effects of that. It's incredible. Like you look at the graphs, when people stay at home, as long as they're keeping the gathering small, it's incredible the difference that makes. 
we could we can actually put this thing out if we were to if everyone were to take it seriously. The problem is about one out of three people, and this is actually the statistic on it, are not physically distancing despite everything. They're still having large gatherings and they are not observing the restrictions. You know the kind. You go to the supermarket. These are the people who are wearing their masks below their nose. These are the people who are wearing the mask hanging on one ear, not across their face. And uh, the Premier also announced that uh, they're going to step up uh, inspections and actually give uh, police uh, further powers to disperse people, give tickets to what he called uh, bad actors. And also, he said, come down hard on these big box retailers, uh, Dr. Gorfinkel. I mean, uh, again, you've seen them. We've all seen them, the big lineups at front of the uh, Costco's and the like. Uh, Does that need to stop? It's heartbreaking, actually. But it does need to stop because here we're left with What happens if our essential services, if we have no ICU beds? And you know, the ICU beds are the canary in the coal mine. Because what happens when the ICU beds are filled? That means a lot of the acute care hospital beds are filled as well. And it's harder to see numbers on that. But that's a real metric. So when you see ICU beds and, you know, you you figure now we're at 50% of ICU beds that have at most two beds available. That's, that's really bad because what that means is where are the rest of the patients? They're filling the acute care hospital bed wards. So if, those, if you can't get a hospital bed, then that's a serious problem, and that's what they're worried about. If we're heading for 100% occupancy, we're going to be in deep trouble without these med- measures. So we've got to keep the gathering small. You know, so that's why he's figuring, well, heck, if we can't reach this one-third of people who refuse to wear masks by being nice and suggesting we do it, well, let's go after them with the power of the law. Do I like that? No, I don't. I'm, I'm actually, a, I say run toward the light in medicine. That's generally my feeling. But here, I'm not sure that we have another choice. Yeah, just finally, Dr. Gorfinkel, everything that's been announced this past hour, a state of emergency, a stay-at-home order as of Thursday, as we mentioned, an inspection blitz of big boxes, stores, uh, schools actually will remain closed in the hot spots until at least February the 10th. Does all of this add up to real light at the end of the tunnel? Do you think 28 days from now we will see a decrease in numbers? Are we finally on the right track here, do you think? We will see a decrease in numbers. There's no question this will cause a decrease in numbers. Once we're on the topic of schools, you know what age group is at the highest risk? This is fascinating stuff. It's the, it's the kids, 9 years old to 17-year-olds, who have a, a test positivity of almost 1 in 5. So 1 in 5 kids who go for a test right now are testing positive. So what does that tell us? If you're going to if you're going to be around a child, you better make sure that child is socially distancing and wearing a mask. And the ideal thing is you would not be around that child. And the other thing is if anyone is sick with any kind of symptoms, the key is to isolate, get tested for sure, but isolate until you hear your result. Because we have to assume that that's going to be COVID until proven otherwise. Now, most likely it's, a, you know, the common cold. But even so, these mitigation things, they make a huge difference. Yeah, and even with all of that in place, does this, and we were talking about this off the top of the show this afternoon, before this was even announced, but it really does come down to personal responsibility, all of this, doesn't it? All of us doing our part. Absolutely. 
And a lot of people think, oh, I'm just one person. But understand, one person equals potential for super spreader event. You go to a supermarket, you know, you go, you, there's always the potential for contacts. And tracing these, it's, it becomes almost an impossibility when there are so, so many cases. It really, really gets a lot, lot tougher. That's why you're hearing less about contact tracing now, because how are we going to trace the many thousands of cases that are happening every day in Ontario? So these mitigation, that these procedures of delimiting the crowds, using the masks religiously, trying to go do your shopping when you know it's a low-risk time, if possible, understanding the group who is most likely to test positive. Right now, they're 9 to 17-year-olds because almost one in five are testing positive. And, of course, practicing the physical distancing and doing the hand sanitizing, all of that will crunch that curve right down so we keep ICU beds and acute care beds available. This is to family doctors. We'll be more available as well. Dr. Gorfickel, really appreciate the time as always. Thank you so much. Many thanks. It's always a pleasure, Jeff. All right. Stay well. There's Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, vaccine researcher on the state of emergency and the stay-at-home order just declared by the province of Ontario. That comes into effect as of Thursday. A second state of emergency declared here in the province of Ontario for the pandemic. Also, a stay-at-home order has been issued that will take effect on Thursday. Premier announcing all of that in the last hour. Let's get the city's reaction to this afternoon's announcement. Here's Deputy Mayor of Toronto, Stephen Holliday, is on the line and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Stephen, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. All right. uh, First of all, your reaction to these measures announced by the provincial government, uh, is it clear to you and to the city what exactly is being asked of us here in Toronto and really right across the province? Yeah, I fully support the the announcements by the Premier and by the government. Uh, I think the government needs all the support they can get. Um, just to underscore the severity of the situation that we're in, um, we've noticed it in many of the comments and some of the news stories leading up to today's announcements that you know something was coming, um, and the, the word "stay-at-home order" you know stand out in my head as uh, something that's very powerful and symbolic to remind us that we're supposed to be complying with some of the key messages that are staying at home. Um, a few other things in today's announcements that are, are, are interesting and helpful is a, a bit of emphasis on enforcement. So I did notice in there some powers uh, for people to issue tickets. Um, those are provincial offense officers and a whole uh, group of people can, can give out tickets. And then one interesting line about uh, the power to disperse people, which is, you know, is, is part of that, that um, concern over civil liberties, but I think it's really important that uh, enforcement officers are able to tell a group of people to, to break it up and, and move along. All right. Who exactly will those enforcement officers be? Sorry to interrupt, but uh, was there any dialogue between the province and the city of Toronto? Is this something that Toronto police are expected to take care of? Yeah, I, I can't comment on the specifics on dialogues because I'm not necessarily at the table for those. Uh, but I can say that, you know, the police have always had a role in this. So have our municipal bylaw officers. You go by the Utopico Civic Centre in, in my end of the city and you'll see that uh, they're quite busy coming and going from there because they're involved in so many things related to COVID enforcement in addition to their regular work. Um, so exactly who does what I think depends on the circumstance, but um, the fact that these rules are in place now to give them the power to do what they need to do is very important in this fight. So can we expect City of Toronto police officers to be, I don't know, walking up and down Young Street asking people, why are you here, what are you doing? 
Uh, I don't necessarily know how it's going to unfold over the next couple of days, but we do know that the, the, the messages were clear from the province that the power is in place to give people tickets. And, uh, and, and adding that stay-at-home order makes it easier to make a clear message to people that they have to comply with it. And uh, it says, you know, you're not supposed to leave your house unless you're doing these specific things. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think it's a fair question to say, uh, you know, why, why is it that you're, you're not doing one of those things? And now that they have the power to give a ticket for that, I think that's helpful. Uh, let me ask you as well, can the city provide any sort of clarity for those that are listening right now, Stephen, when it comes to going to work? If you work downtown, if you work on uh, Bay Street, uh, who is it ultimately that decides whether or not uh, you need to be in the office and your work is, quote-unquote, essential? Well, well, we'll wait and see the details of what, because uh, it's only at the press release stage, but there are uh, you know, regulations around the different uh, pieces of legislation that the province has, has put together, and those are often very, very detailed, and uh, I know that there are command tables in the in the city of Toronto that will go and and, uh, and work with the province to interpret those. And there's always a, a gazillion questions that come up. I mean, I, I had was just dealing with one today from a constituent level about a certain business saying, "Can we be open or not?" But there will be a process to figure that out. But the overarching statement in today's um, in today's announcements is, if if you can work from home, do it. Right. And, and before, I think it was kind of one of those things, you know, I kind of like to do it this way or that way or I should. Now it's more clear than ever that you got to be at home because that's the safest place for you. One of the things the premier talked about was uh, closing some construction sites, non-essential construction sites. Do we know what the framework is uh, around that? Because that has been uh, a subject of a lot of debate, as you well know, throughout the first and now the uh, second wave. How do we determine what construction projects are going to go silent for the next little while in the city? Again, I think some more detailed language around uh, the regulations for that will come out. Uh, but there is a signal that they're moving in the direction to close down more, which we know uh, may be a helpful thing with respect to the spread of the virus. I know it's a it's a big economic impact for workers and for businesses, you know, constructors or developers and so on. But you know, uh, I, I've got family members that are in the construction industry, and you know, I've talked to them, and they said it's hard, right? You're you're working close to close by other individuals, you have to wonder, you know, if you're underground or in, in combined spaces, that these are environments that allow the virus to spread. So uh, clear that, that more of these types of operations need to close down for a temporary amount of time to curb the spread of the virus, I think is helpful. And I support that move of the government. What is your anticipation? What do you expect downtown to look like over the next 28 days, uh, Stephen? I mean, there's also been a lot of talk over the last few months with the gray zone and the quote-unquote uh, lockdown that uh, it didn't look the same here in the second wave as it did the first, that there was much more traffic on the Gardner, the DVP, much more hustle and bustle downtown this time around. Do you expect it to go back to uh, what we saw in the first wave, to downtown to essentially become a, a ghost town for the next 28 days? Well, I expect there'll be some amount of change, um, but I, I, I'm not sure that it's going to be the shock as what it was last time. And I mean, I have to admit, Jeff, I, I haven't been downtown very much. I mean, I'm I'm a resident of Etobicoke, and anytime I do go into work, I would go into my constituency office here, which is, uh, you know, which is quite deserted. <laughs> I'm really the only one in there trying to get access to the computer networks, but... Um, um, you know, that's not really going to change my life. And uh, I'm a guy that would have gone downtown every couple of days or every other day or some days every day in a week. Um, so I think I think a lot of that change has already occurred. But, yeah, maybe this, this statement around working from home to the maximum extent possible will encourage more people to stay home. And in the short term, that's a good thing.
All right, just finally, uh, what is your message to the city, uh, the residents of the city of Toronto, uh, as we uh, approach the stay-at-home order and uh, what seems to be a more severe lockdown for the next 28 days in another state of emergency? Well, uh, it's twofold. The first is the message and the severity of complying with these instructions is is no greater than ever, and especially with something like a stay-at-home order. And on the second side of the coin, if I really look at my life and, and doing my best to try to live up what has, of what has been expected of me up until now with all of the recommendations and the asks, uh, this this changeover really isn't going to affect me that much because I've been behaving and I you know hopefully I don't I'm not facing a tick place for those people that do not listen and uh, you know I, I'm encouraged that enforcement is going on out there because I've heard that message from people also that say enforcement is paramount and now some tools are in place to make sure it happens. All right, Stephen Holiday, Deputy Mayor of the City of Toronto. Stephen, appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. All right, be well and stay safe. And thank you for your time as always. That's it for mine. I'm Jeff MacArthur.